Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Ryan Huber. Dr. Huber is, a, is an adjunct professor of Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary and the author of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Ethics of Formation. Dr. Huber, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we could get this going and, you know, line this up and make it happen. Um, I, for, first of all, I mean, we have to jump right into this, this question. If anyone has seen your book cover, um, they will know it is, it is rather unique. I, I, I tend to think of Bonhoeffer books as pretty, um, pretty low key, like nothing, yeah. nothing stands out particularly. But uh, when I saw yours, I thought, this is, this is a first, uh, like a, a really artful, um, cool picture on a, on a book cover. So I, I, first, I wanted to just start by asking you, how, like, how did that happen? How did you end up with such a cool book cover on this book? After yeah, firstly, I think this is perfect podcast content because we're yeah. describing something the audience isn't looking at. Yeah, I mean, is, that's, that's what I'm going for. It's just, we're, we're pros here. So let me paint you a picture. Um, <laughs> what if Bonhoeffer's body was exploding with light? <laughs> Um, that is sort of what we were going for. No, we were going for it. So the, the book's called um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Ethics of Formation, and it was based uh, on the dissertation by the same name. Uh, super reviewed so that it was a little bit more readable and you drop some of the less than necessary uh, academic chatter. But yeah, it, the book cover came from a relationship with a pastor of mine in, in Los Angeles who's also just this brilliant artist who's done many, 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 many book covers, uh, illustrated graphic novels, uh, Christian children's books and things of that nature. So it just, we went back and forth on some ideas. I didn't want it to be boring. I wanted it to be bold. I wanted it to stick out to people. And honestly, it was like, maybe I never get to write another book. This is my one shot. Do I want like a red square? Not to throw shade at Dijon, but you know, I mean, Rothko's cool. But, you know, do I, do I just want, like, a picture of some trees or something? That's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, like, this is, this is my life's work. I've worked on this for 10 years. I want it to at least be eye-catching. So even if someone hates the book, at least they like the cover. So it's very gratifying to, to hear people actually liking it and not being like, this guy is a crazy person. Like, who in their right mind would write an academic book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and then put an exploding face in the cover? The answer to that is Ryan Huber. <laughs> well, I, I really loved it. Yeah, I was I was excited. Once I saw the cover, I'm I'm very I'm so basic. Once <laughs> I will I will entirely judge a book by its cover. So seeing seeing one that had full artwork was like, all right, let's do this. I'm um, that's who I was gunning for. I wanted <laughs> to get those basic academic people out there that really need a, a nice picture to look at. Target acquired. Let me tell you another story about the book that has nothing to do with the contents. Well, not nothing, but it's it's tangential. I fought hard for footnotes. I'm a footnote snob. You use endnotes in your book, I'm not gonna look at them. I'm okay. sorry. I'm not gonna look at them. I'm not gonna flip back and forth like a maniac between the page that I'm reading and some, some chapter endnotes, okay. But book endnotes, like if I have to go all the way to the end of the book, it just is not the best scholarly apparatus. I'm very sorry to all of my amazing Bonhoeffer scholar peers. I paid extra money out of my own pocket to make sure that because my my publisher was like hey this is not standard i was like cool how much is it they gave me the number i was like done because i want footnotes because footnotes are dope that's the way to go and end notes are not it's just like you know my wife's family used to put miracle whip on grilled cheese that's gross super gross 
Sorry, don't put Miracle Whip on grilled cheese. Sorry to my mother-in-law. Did you have to pay money to get out of that too? No, I was just like, I'm not going to eat this. (laughs) (laughs) Do not put Miracle Whip on my grilled cheese. So yeah. So that's, that's, so that's why my book has a crazy cover and why it's footnotes rather than endnotes. Cause I was like, we're not doing a, a bad cover or even a boring cover and we're not going to do, um, endnotes. So awesome. Well, how did that journey start? How did you get into Bonhoeffer? Um, so I was a teenager once 20 something years ago and mm-hmm. I was really into Jesus cause I'd had like a salvation experience. I don't know what that means anymore, but um, I am a Christian, um, but I don't know what it was. I grew up uh, nominally, culturally, Northeastern liberal Methodist. And then as a teenager, I had like a big mega church salvation thing happen, got involved in a youth group and got more serious about discipleship and things like that. And um, in among all the books in the church bookstore, the Christian bookstore, there are only a few really deep ones and through going to a conference, I went to a conference and there's a guy named David Nasser that was speaking at this conference. And he was like in the Baptist world. I think he still is. I think he might be involved with Liberty. I'm not sure. Whatever. Doesn't matter. But David Nasser wrote a devotional called something like 40 Days to Die or, or call, called a call to die, 40 day journal devotional. So I went through this 40 day this 40 day devotional and it was really intense spiritually and just all these spiritual exercises. And I'm a teenager going through all this stuff, not for the first time, but the most intense version for sure. So I think it was called a call to die um, by David Nasser. And it was amazing. And in the front of the book was this quote and it said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die dash Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I was like, who is that? That's, that's a, that's hardcore, man. That's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Cause I'd seen my friends have emotional experiences, youth group experiences, mountaintop experiences, altar calls. But I was like, that's not what this is. Yeah. And then I was like, Oh, this is what this is. And so I was like, who's this Bonhoeffer guy? So, cause Nasser had talked about Bonhoeffer a little bit in this devotion. So I go to the church bookstore, Christian bookstore, and I found a, the cost of discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I was like, yes, like, and unbeknownst to me, this is one of the few really deep works of theology that was on their shelves. And if they had known everything that was in it, they probably wouldn't have even had it on the shelf because it's like not cookie cutter evangelicalism, but yeah. hardcore discipleship was still, was still sort of part of the menu. And I started reading it. I don't even know if I got all the way through it, but I was like, this is radical. This is crazy. Like, this is amazing. I've never read anything like this. And I'm like a theology nerd in the making. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is important stuff. So um, I was kind of on the train from that point. And um, cool. uh, discipleship was incredibly important to me from an early age because of that. And went through high school and college and got married and started teaching at a Christian school. And I was really into discipleship. I started getting obsessed with educating for discipleship. Uh, got a master's degrees nights and weekend. This is all in South Florida. And uh, Bonhoeffer kept coming back up, coming back up, coming back up. At some point I read Life Together and I was like, yes, this is it. This is it. Every Christian needs to read this book. This is what we're missing. When people talk about buzzword community, like this is actually the thing. So I've got in my tool belt now, I've got some discipleship. I've got some Life Together. And, um, I'm like, wow, I really want to like dig deeper into this stuff. So I got my master's degree 
early 20s teaching at a Christian school. My wife and I decided like, hey, let's move to Boston. It was a very long process of, of discernment because um, I want to do a PhD. I didn't get into a PhD program, but I did get into a Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, like advanced master's degree program, which eventually became a THM for me over three years in Boston. So this is like 2009 to 2012. And my wife did um, a film scoring program at Berkeley College of Music. So while we're in Boston, I'm going to Presbyterian Church, like a Tim Keller style PCA mm-hmm. um, Presbyterian Church. And then I'm going to like mass with my Catholic friends uh, from Boston College. So Boston College is Jesuit Catholic. It's probably the best ethics institution uh, Catholic ethics in America. So it gave me some clout to try to get into PhD programs. Uh, but I was still focused on Christ and culture stuff and religious education stuff. I wasn't quite to ethics yet. Although the terms people use for that in different areas of the church, like Christ and culture stuff in the Catholic, in, in the Catholic Jesuit world is pretty close to ethics. Like mm-hmm. it's like, there's a very thin separator. You're talking about how do we relate church and world and how do we live in the world as disciples and how do we make sense of all the stuff? So all that said, at the end of my THM, I've done evangelical stuff. I've done Catholic stuff. Bonhoeffer was a big part of that. In, in 2011, one year before I finished at Boston College, we went out to L.A. We went out to L.A. because my wife is a film composer and wanted to become a film composer, was doing that at Berkeley College of Music. We went out. She got an internship. I took a Greek intensive at Fuller Theological Seminary because I needed to catch up on my languages because Catholics don't do languages the same way Protestant evangelicals do. So I needed to like do Greek intensive. I needed to catch up. I met with some professors. I met with Glenn Sasson, among others. Um, <clears throat> and it was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And during that summer, 2011, I read uh, Eric Metaxas's Bonhoeffer biography. And that kind of reignited my Bonhoeffer stuff. Like it had kind of, it, it had lain a little dormant because I was so enmeshed in Catholic theology and social teaching and ethics and culture and all that stuff. I was the education, all that stuff. So just that I wouldn't, I didn't know yet that I was kind of giving myself a basis to write about formation, but I was, uh, or God was, or someone was. Um, yeah. And so I read Metaxas's biography and I'm blown away because although it is not an academic text and although there, there are certainly ideological lens issues, it was the connective tissue that I needed to put together the life story of Bonhoeffer because I had read parts of Baitka and you know, I don't think, I don't know that Schlingensiepen was out yet, but uh, you know, I'd read uh, as parts of I Knew Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is a great little book that came out like very shortly after his death with all these stories from his friends. Mm-hmm. So I read, I read Metaxas and it just connected so many things for me. I was like, whoa, this is incredible. Not so much Metaxas's book, but like the story, just yeah. the story. And so I read that and I was like, that's my interlocutor. Cause I was talking to potential PhD mentors, both in LA and on the phone talking to a, a guy in London. Um, and it was just like, this is the guy, this is the person, this is my, you have to have a primary interlocutor for most PhD work. You have to be talking to someone who's more established. And then Bonhoeffer was my guy, practical on the ground, but still deeply intellectual, devoted to Jesus, but like very interesting. You can see some movement over time going from church, more churchy to kind of more worldly. But then there's like the early, early stuff that's super academic and philosophical. So I really just started digging in. So when I go back to Boston college for my final year, to get a THM at Boston College, your last semester, you do a thesis, you do a THM thesis. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be good. And it's got to be original. It can't just be like, you know, something that everyone said. So I had been digging, 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 digging. And I took a, 
I took a Kierkegaard class and I wrote about Bonhoeffer for my final paper. And I took a Christian political thought class and I wrote about Bonhoeffer's, the evolution of Bonhoeffer's pacifism. Um, and, you know, past a simple pacifism. Um, I wrote about Bonhoeffer for every single thing I could write about. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote my, T, my THM thesis on the Catholic influence on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which um, I had a chapter on Augustine and Aquinas. I had a chapter on um, Thomas Akempis and the Imitatio. And I had a chapter on the, the physical presence of the church at Rome, like its effect on Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Um, I should probably go back someday and like rewrite that better and then like try to put it out as a little booklet for like, hey, are you Catholic? Do you like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Here's yeah. some, here's some, some, go- some stuff. And then I can include the virtue ethics stuff that's in the final chapter of, of the book we're discussing. So right. that's a good idea. I'm going to write that down. Thank you for that, Corey. Yeah, you're welcome, man. I, I, that's why I'm here. So all that to say, we moved back to LA in 2012 after a long discernment process again. I was eventually able to, to get into uh, Fuller's um, PhD in Christian ethics under Glenn Stassen, who was both a Bonhoeffer scholar and, a, and an established ethicist and really got me over onto the ethics side of things. Because um, originally, even coming to the program, I was still like, Bonhoeffer and like for in like Christian education for discipleship, right? I was almost there. Like I was almost at the formation piece. But Glenn really welcomed me into the program and, and helped me out. And unfortunately, soon thereafter he was diagnosed with cancer and he fought uh he fought hard, but he succumbed to cancer um probably about a year or so into my program. But he gave me some tremendous gifts. One was accepting, I was the final student accepted um, into the program under his mentorship. The other was he let me, as he was battling and doing chemo, he let me co-teach his Bonhoeffer class with him, which was such a gift. Wow. It was amazing to be able to teach with him and alongside him and, and be able to lift the burden on him as he was going through his own um, sort of nightmare. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, what a gift that was. And then my relationship with Glenn led to relationships with like Reggie Williams, who's amazing and other Bonhoeffer scholars. And um, yeah, it's uh, that's sort of how it unfolded. And then Hawk Jr. Lee, um, he's a Martin Luther King scholar and the Smeads um, chair of Christian ethics at, at Fuller. He really pushed me to, to become an ethicist and he really pushed me to think like an ethicist and he really pushed me on method. And he, his fingerprints are all over my book because he pushed it to be better and better and better. But we had to bring in a Bonhoeffer scholar to kind of make up for losing Glenn. So Lisa Dayhill came in and she was amazing and she really pushed me and I did independent studies with her and she pushed me on the Bonhoeffer stuff and she had done translation work and she's, she's like kind of like uh, Victoria Barnett and that she's done all the things, right? She, she can do the scholarly stuff. She can do the translation stuff. She can do the editorial stuff. She can write, she can, you know, teach, she can do all that. So she came in and then finally on the back end, Victoria came in as my third reader. Um, and they, you know, loved the dissertation because they helped form it. Like, why would you not? <laughs> like, um, and, and it really, cause it's yet, um, Hock Jun Lee had really pushed me towards ethics, the book ethics. He's like, I think you need to be, yes, discipleship's great. Yes. Life together is great, but you need to rip apart ethics and say something that no one's ever said. And I spent hours and hours and hours and hours ripping through ethics and just reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it. So here was the aha moment. Yeah. So I'm ripping through ethics, trying to figure it out. 
And I remember reading in the editorial comments and other people that like ethics is completely unformed and it's got no structure or coherence. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not true. This thing is a thing, even though he got arrested before he could fully finish it. Like phase one and phase two were basically complete. And he had been building like to the point where he would write an essay, then he would rewrite that essay. Then he would write another essay to kind of supplement that essay. Like he had a structure. Yeah. And I'm reading in the, I'm reading the editorial notes and there's this, there's this huge chunk in one of the essays and there's an editorial note on it where it's like, Oh, this chunk was later inserted here and here. And I, I talk about this in my book. And if you take the chunk out, if you take the chunk out that he inserted in phase two, it goes straight from him talking about this is what ethics as formation would look like. And then he goes right into actually doing it. Mm-hmm. He lays it out in ethics of formation. He's like, this is what it would look like. He does Christ reality and good and ethics of formation. He lays it out and then he goes straight into it. I'm like, Whoa, he told everybody what he was doing. He said, yeah. it. he said, this is what you would do if you were going to do ethics as formation. And then he starts doing it. But later in phase two, when he inserts a bunch of really necessary stuff right after that, you lose the thread. Hmm. And so I was like, Oh wow. And then I was like, this also reminds me of the language at the end of discipleship. Hmm. And I'd read so many people be like, Bonhoeffer's totally different by the time he writes ethics than when he wrote discipleship. This is totally different. I read the last couple of chapters of discipleship again. I read ethics again, discipleship, ethics. I'm like, this is the same stuff. Yeah. This is literally the same stuff. He's just, he's changed his language. It was a few years difference, right? From, from uh, 37 to whatever, 40. But it's like, this is the same project. Hmm. So I'm like, that's the aha moment and I'm ripping into it. And I'm like, everyone. Okay. So I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but yeah, it's, it's a very into like, you're wrong. Like that's kind of, our. <laughs> and I was like, all these people are wrong. Anybody who says there's no continuity between discipleship and ethics is just not paying attention. Hmm. And anybody that doesn't see the, see the project they're not fully seeing what he was doing. That's fine. But the book needed to be written. The book that says, Hey, this is what's happening here. He's carrying this discipleship thing forward through formation, through a confirmation. So German words, gestaltung, gleich gestaltung, carrying it forward. And then he says, look, an ethic, a Christian ethic has to be an ethic of formation, which people ignore like, Oh yeah. And then he forgot about it in his other essays. It's like, no, it has to be gestaltung. It has to be. And then he goes and he says, this is what it would have to include. You'd have to do this, 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 and this. And then he does it in the rest of ethics. So ethics is not fragmentary. It is incomplete, but it's not fragmentary. It has a core. It has a structure. Um, it has a dominant methodology. It has a secondary methodology. And this was identified by Larry Rasmussen in like the 70s, mm-hmm. where he's like, oh, yeah, this is about formation and de- deontology. But formation, first and foremost, and then deontology, which is for those who aren't ethicists, like for- formation is this process that we're going to talk about and describe that you go through. It's kind of like virtue ethics, but not really kind of like it's a little different. But then deontology is just rule-based ethics. So it's basically thou shalt, thou shalt not, you know, Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, things of that nature. So Rasmussen had already said this. And as I was doing my secondary research, I'm like, this was already out there. Why is everybody ignoring it? Why is everybody ignoring what Rasmussen said? Like he was absolutely correct. Not absolutely. He was 95% correct. Hmm. 
but the D, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer works English and the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works editorial work hadn't yet happened when he wrote that. And so he didn't have all the documents that I had access to years later. So I was able to do like a way more robust version of what his argument was, which is Bonhoeffer must be read as an ethicist of formation. Yes, there's deontology there. There's a little tiny bit of teleology there, but he's an ethicist of formation. This is exactly what his project was. So that is what the dissertation was about for me. That's what the book has been about for me. It's saying, first and foremost, Bonhoeffer is an ethicist of formation. There are some other things. It was a single evolving project over time from his encounter with Jesus um, in like 1929, 1930, 1931 in that range, all the way to his arrest uh, by the Gestapo. People are obsessed with letters and papers from prison. That's fine, but it's not a systematic work. It's a guy who, a depressed man who knows he's probably going to die, is trying not to give away secrets to an evil state regime, writing letters and fiction and other things from, from prison. So it's not useless. It's totally useful and great and awesome, but it's not a systematic kind of statement. His last, his magnum opus, undisputedly, is ethics. It's a capstone of what he started to do and teach and talk about and write from the moment he met Jesus Christ uh, and went from what Baitka says from theologian to Christian. Yeah. And it makes sense. It makes sense. And for us to take such a brilliant man and for years and years and years be saying, well, you know, he's kind of scrambled and he didn't really have like a, you know, it was kind of all over the place and he didn't really have, no, he did. He knew what he was doing. Karl Barth called his ethics brilliant. Karl Barth said this, I, he said, I might not even write anything about ethics because Bonhoeffer already did it. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we trust Karl and why don't we trust what Dietrich Bonhoeffer left us? Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thrust of the book. I know that I'm very like garrulous in the way that I present this like as an argument, but that was the, the energy that was driving me to like not only make sure this thing got done so I could get a PhD, but so I could get out to the world and make the argument and, and be like, how prescient was this, was this guy? Like he's doing something like the rebirth of virtue and character ethics decades before anybody starts doing like Alastair McIntyre and all of his disciples and Stanley Hauerwas and Glenn Stass and David Gushy. Like there's a reason David Gushy likes my book so much because he loves Bonhoeffer and he loves character ethics mm -hmm. and Bonhoeffer called it. He called it before the rebirth even happened because there are real serious problems with the way we were doing ethics and modernity with what, you know, some people would call Kantian liberalism. And Bonhoeffer was dealing with that in the crux of the thing. And he lived to tell his dying day in a way that was faithful mm -hmm. uh, and in a way that was consistent with what he said he believed. So mm -hmm. that's my rant. I'm sure you have more questions, but that's how good, I got into I'm here to hear from you. I'm here to hear from you. No, no worries at all. Uh, I wanted to backtrack a, a little bit. You mentioned, you said the ethics is his magnus, magnum opus. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, I haven't interviewed anyone who has specifically worked on ethics. Um, as, Isn't that weird? Just pause. How many people have you interviewed? Uh, you're probably 25, 26, something like that. And not a single one is focused on ethics. Well, I, I, I guess they, they probably have written stuff on ethics, but you know, I'm, I'm interviewing people who have books coming out. So yeah. I haven't interviewed someone who has a book coming out on ethics. They might have done that in the past. That sort of but thing. E but even that, think about yeah, it. Yeah, that is strange. Yeah. It's I like Karl Barth. Okay. Let's just, let's just say this. Give, give me this, this point. Karl Barth's the most important theologian of the 20th century. For sure. He says, there's a book out there 
that is the best book on ethics. And it's by Dietrich von Hoffer. And we're all like, nah. Yeah. Well, we're that's like, yeah, what I was going to ask okay. you. I wanted to ask you, uh, so for someone who has written on ethics, if, let's say someone's jumping in by, oh, I want to know more about Bonhoeffer. They find this podcast and they have not read anything except maybe, maybe discipleship because that's usually how everyone <laughs> starts. Yeah. Uh, what is ethics as a, as a project? Like what's, what's, when I jumped into it, I'll, I'll just give you this. When I jumped into it, I had read some ministerial ethics, those sorts of things, my undergrad. Uh, and like Bible college or pastors kind of thing. And it was very much like, these are the ethical things that you need to think about. So I jumped into ethics expecting something like that and jumped straight into, you know, uh, the love of God and the disintegration of the world. <laughs> it was like, this is way different than I thought it yeah. was. Going. So what's, what's yeah. going on there? Okay, I think there's a bunch of things going on. <clears throat> One is it's not his most accessible work. That would be Life Together. Yeah. It's not the work that I think every Christian should read. That would be Life Together. <laughs> It's not his most kind of amazingly passionate Jesus book. That's discipleship. Mm -hmm. And the second book that every Christian should read by Bonhoeffer. It's not as like nerdy philosophical as his first couple of things, his first, his two dissertations. So that crowd isn't as interested. Like if you're like into Martin Heidegger, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then then you want to read volumes one and two of teacher Bonhoeffer works. Right. So Sanctorum Communio. I always mix that up, Communio Sanctorum or Sanctorum Communio. I'm going to go with Sanctorum Communio. I'm probably wrong. It's Latin, so you can kind of fudge it. Um, I just forgot my declensions, my Latin declensions, because it's been 10 years since I went to BC. Um, But, and then, um, uh, not being in time, but what is it? What, the Heidegger? Oh, Act and Being. Act and Being. So, which is kind of like, if he's not responding directly to Heidegger, he's responding in the milieu of Heideggerian kind of thought. Right. So those are super nerdy philosophical. So if you want to get to that and you want to do that whole thing, you're going to go there. If you're just like, I'm a pastor and I love Jesus and I love Bonhoeffer, you're going to go volumes uh, four and five, um, which are um, discipleship and life together. If you are like, oh, I'm, exis- I'm existential and I like pain and suffering and Kierkegaard and death of God. And this is super, how do we do this thing in the world? And I really kind of hate the church maybe. So like maybe anti-institutionalist letters and papers from prison. Right. <laughs> right. And like if I want a grab bag of thoughts that I can use for my, you know, whatever I'm doing, then then ethics is not the best thing because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense unless you read it as a, as a project. Right. But ethics is the peak. It's the thing he spent, I think the most time on in his prime. Um, it's mature Bonhoeffer. It's Bonhoeffer taking the things he wrote in discipleship and life together and combating the worldly situation he was in. Um, the rise of the Nazis and Hitler, all of that, the underground church, the, the kind of being hunted, being a double kind of agent type person, kind of his loved ones being in danger. Like he's starting to really, it's where the rubber meets the road, but it's still way more academic than uh, discipleship and life together. It just, it just has a higher level of thought. He is doing a more magisterial kind of thing it's a more grand unified theory of how the world is and how we live in the world. And it's 
the one that, you know, Karl Barth was like, this is super duper important. Everyone should pay attention to this. So it's philosophical, it's theological, it's ethical, it's practical. It's building upon the project of life together and of discipleship and of the things Bonhoeffer wrote before that and what he taught at Finkenwalde. And um, I just think it's the, the, the purest distillation of his mature thought in systematic form. So it's the most complete statement you're going to get of mature Bonhoeffer's thoughts about how Christians ought to live in the world. So your book is based off of uh, one of the essays or one of the chapters, um, the book title, at least, um, in Ethics, Ethics of Formation. And you call Bonhoeffer is an ethicist of formation. Um, So I'm I'm wondering, you say that that's kind of what connects life together, discipleship and ethics. What does it mean to be an ethicist of formation? Yeah, so it's based on the essay, which was meant to be the second essay, probably, um, in ethics, which is ethics as formation. I decided to change it to ethics of formation just as my project, uh, just for a couple different reasons, um, which are probably too minutiae laden for us to get into. But uh, Christ's reality and good, he lays out kind of the basic presuppos- presuppositions he has about who Jesus Christ is and what reality is and what good is and how we would even talk about these things. He's kind of doing like a theological foundation. And then in ethics as formation, he says, this is how ethics should be done. This is how it should be done. If you're going to do Christian ethics, especially, and he's taking some cues from Bart, who's like, Bart's like, you can't talk about a God. You have to talk about specific gods. Like this is the Christian God, right? There's, it's not just like some unmoved mover. Mm. There is a specific God that has revealed God's self so Bonhoeffer's being like, you can't just do ethics, which he was early to that game because every postmodern scholar would be like, well, you have to do a certain kind of ethics because you have to admit what perspective you're coming from, right? Is, mm-hmm. Are you doing Islamic ethics? Like, are you doing atheistic kind of, you're doing vegan ethics? What are you doing, right? Um, so he says, if you're going to do Christian ethics, it can't be in rules and principles. That's not your, now those are fine, but that's not our ultimate methodological ground. That's not our, that's not the center of the project. Christian ethics is doing ethics on the basis of the person of Jesus Christ. Now that seems like, duh, right? <laughs> right. But nobody does that. Yeah. People like the teachings of Jesus. They like the commands of God. They like the, you know, love commandment. They like to interpret a thousand different ways what love is. People want to do teleological kingdom kind of what, how do we make the kingdom come, man? And those are all great. And there's a place for them. Bonhoeffer's like, it's the person of Jesus Christ. The God man, the God person, the person who united the reality of the world and the the reality of God into one perfect reality through his, and this is something I coined um, the Christological triad, right, of incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. That is all over. That was a key, Corey, to the linking, even though the the Gleichgestaltung, even though uh, confirmation formation are at the end of discipleship, Mm -hmm. um, the Christological triad is all over it. Like, I got the numbers. It's hundreds and hundreds of mentions of, of those kinds of things. And then they're in the beginning of ethics. So clearly his project in discipleship and, the, and then life together is kind of like, this is how this would practically go down in a community is intimately linked to his project in ethics. 
Hmm. It is about human beings in community following Jesus, but more than that, being formed by Jesus through movements of incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Hmm. So, so ethics as formation is doing ethics as a Christian with the presupposition that we ought to be following Jesus in such a way that we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through these rhythms, these Christological triad rhythms, that it's Christological that we're being formed by that logos. We're being formed by that image. We're being formed by that gestalt, that Mm -hmm. form, and that the place where this happens for the most part is in the body of Jesus Christ, which is the church community, right? Mm -hmm. So it's people in the body of Christ identifying with and being formed according to the image, the person, the present reality, the form of Jesus Christ. Now this happens through things like confession, things like relationship, things like service, things like reading the word of God out loud to oneself and others and in the quiet. Humanism, Mm. conversation, music is huge. You know, there's all these things that we can do because this is the human being per se. This is the human being. This is to coin, uh, you know, a a cheesy Christian song, a new way to be human, Mm -hmm. right? This is, this is the new, this is the second Adam. Mm -hmm. We are all going to be to the extent that we are conformed to this person. We are going to be made like this person. And so that is ethics as formation. And it has some, that's not everything because I had to write a whole book about it, but um, it has some characteristics that are similar to character ethics, which came out of the Protestant kind of camp and virtue ethics, which came out of the Thomistic Catholic camp of like a process over time of the person becoming a certain kind of person through relationships, habits, Mm-hmm. mysterious forces graces or whatever you want to call it the work of the holy spirit christians would call it um stories narratives as howard was points out we're shaped we're formed over time ethics um i'm gonna swear so you can bleep this if you want it's all good so fighter pilots say that when the shit hits the fan you don't rise to the occasion you default to your training yeah People don't suddenly become ethical exemplars when when the chips are down, Mm. when the Nazis take over. Why did so many people just fall in line behind the Nazis? They were formed that way. Cultural liturgies, as James K.A. Smith would say. Mm -hmm. They were made that way. They were ready to follow the Nazis. They were formed to follow the Nazis. The things that made them who they were were far more German than Christian far more Deutsche than Christen. Mm-hmm. That is what they were ready to do. That was their training. And in, and in the same way, Christians who worship any political leader, any political party, they are going to take on the characteristics of that process of formation more than their formation as followers of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, and we see that. We see that in the world. Yep. If I'm more of an American than a Christian, that's what I'm going to default to when weird stuff happens. That's just how it's going to go. If I'm more of a, even let's say if I'm more of a social justice warrior than a Christian, I'm going to default to that. And maybe there's some overlap. There probably is. But if I have to choose, 
I'm going to choose the thing that I've been formed in. Even if I say otherwise, even if I say I'm a Christian first, but then I'm storming the Capitol. Okay. That doesn't seem like a super Jesus-y thing to do. Maybe you're more a storming the Capitol person than you are a Christian. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen because you have a list of rules on your wall that you go, okay, this is the list I'm going to follow today. That happens because you undergo a process over time. That's the end of that rant. <laughs> that's great. That, I actually, I really enjoyed that section of your book. It's kind of the thing that stuck out uh, for Bonhoeffer. Like, I, I did my thesis on aut- autonomy, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of see a lot of Bonhoeffer's work as pulling against that, as being surrendering autonomy to, to obey the will mm-hmm. of God. And... Mm-hmm. There's a section in there in your book too, where it's talking about like, he's not after principled ethics, like a universal principled ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's, it's actually about a, a sort of a moment by moment dependence on Jesus and in that process. Yeah, like what if Jesus is actually alive and present? That like, <laughs> honestly, think about that. that. That is, okay, so Bonhoeffer's ethics is like, hey, what if we actually believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yeah. What if we believe that he's actually alive and present in our lives? And people are like, <gasps> and it's like, that's, what's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do Christian ethics, if you're embarrassed of the Christian part, then sure, go with your rules and your principles and your, okay, fantastic. Great system, bro. That's fantastic. But if you're going to be a Christian ethicist, what if the person of Jesus Christ is the starting point and the foundation? Mm-hmm. I know that's crazy <laughs> for Christian ethics, but that's what Bonhoeffer is saying. You mentioned uh, character and virtue ethics. I have basically no background in ethics other than reading Bonhoeffer's and now your book. Um, (laughs) What are character ethics and what are virtue ethics? Okay, so ethics for a long time, like kind of modernist ethics, were like, how can we be the most logical and come up with like the best system of either, you know, the best system of rules that are just and, and right and or the best kind of like society or goals, like that's teleological ethics. Like how can we have the best results? So for a long time, you know, Kant was the ruler of the roost with this because he had really articulated the most rational logic kind of system. Think about this. So the categorical imperative is often misquoted, but the real basis of the categorical imperative for Kant is don't do something that makes its own existence impossible. Oftentimes it's, it's formulated as don't do something that if everybody did it, it would be bad. But that's not really it. It's like, don't do something that by doing it makes its very existence impossible. So don't do something that's illogical. Like illogical is unethical. So I'll give you an example. Don't lie. Don't lie. Why? Because if everybody lied all the time, there'd be no such thing as a truth. Therefore, there would be no such thing as a lie. Therefore, it would destroy itself. Got it. So it's just purely rational. Don't do anything that's irrational. Don't do anything that doesn't make sense. But this became a very individual, a very uh, propositional, a very atomistic, a very, uh, hey, look, I'm just telling you what's rational, what's logical. It's like, yeah, but you have slaves. So not sure you're really living that out. No, 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 no. But listen, I've got access to pure reason. And then everyone has access to pure reason or claims that they do. And they're all ignoring their perspective and their location and their identity and their biases and their loyalties and all that hidden stuff. Because we're all pretending to be scientists. Because remember, that was modernity. Science was really great. And we're saving lives and also nuclear bombs. But we were, you know, doing all this sciencey stuff. So everyone wanted to be a scientist. So ethics became a science, kind of. Mm-hmm. Of like, let me propositionally build this, this argument. 
And virtue ethics and character ethics are a response to that individual, principle-based, rational, universal, modernist, logical, I pretend like, uh, so Stanley Hauerwas captures this perfectly where he says, you know, this kind of ethics, this kind of what he calls Kantian liberal ethics is the story that we have no story. Mm -hmm. It's the story that we have no story, right? It's the person pretending they come from nowhere, they speak no language, they have no priors, they have no ideological lens. I'm just telling you just the facts, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Just the facts. That's a fiction. Yeah, for sure. That's a fiction. No one, that person doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. There is no tabula rasa. There is no blank slate. We're all people. We already have things baked in. We need to, as postmodernity argues against modernity, we need to acknowledge those things, put them on the table, and then we can have an honest conversation about what we're doing. Yeah. So that's what, so Alistair McIntyre, brilliant guy, wrote After Virtue, and then uh, Who's Justice, Which Rationality. Highly, highly, highly recommend. He's deconstructing this whole like, oh yeah, we're like, you know, we're just kind of doing logical things here with ethics. No, you're borrowing from systems that you don't acknowledge the coherence of, and you're building some sort of messed up mosaic of ethics that makes no sense. Everybody's this like weird Frankenstein Picasso sewn together. Like people are like, I really care about justice. And it's like, yeah, also your phone was made by a slave. So yeah. maybe you should think about that, you jerk. Um, so everybody's got these weird things that we say we believe and we're not consistent and we're not coherent and we don't have a system. And McIntyre's like, we need to return to some sort of coherent tradition that comes from a place and a time and has mentors and has, has history and carries doctrine through like whatever it is, you need to have a coherent kind of home. Then we can adjudicate systems versus systems, traditions versus traditions, communities versus communities. But for us just to like piece it together, we're all just kind of, freakishly unethical people walking around pretending that we have like if someone's like i just follow my heart it's like okay you're a monster <laughs> you're a monster because pedophiles just follow their heart what say you about that you just follow your heart like that makes no sense and so character ethics is and virtue virtue ethics is thomistic it's mcintyrean it's, you know, coming out of push, push, push. And then character ethics is more of a Protestant kind of, let's take that and like soften it up a little bit and add a lot of Bibleiness and kind of like, we're more concerned with the formation of character and what is character. Virtue ethics is a little Aristotelian. Sometimes it has some stuff. So Howard Ross was like, hey guys, love this whole virtue ethics thing you're doing, but you're borrowing from like Greek barbarians who love to murder each other. And that's not explicitly Christian. Even though St. Thomas is dope, he's baptizing mm -hmm. Aristotle. Arist Aristotle has some, he's problematic as they yeah. can say, right? Aristotle's problematic. Kind of hates women loves war a little bit and he's got some cool virtues but he's not jesus what are we doing let's just do a jesus-based version of this let's talk about kind of what are christian virtues or characters that we want let's talk about the things the christian narrative and what forms us so howard Watts is like narrative and community and mentors and this is how it works and then people like stassen and gushy are being even more explicit about the role of the kingdom um and the sermon on the mount and the teachings and the words of jesus and i'm for it i'm all for it but i think the person of jesus is logically prior to the teaching of Jesus. Now, we might meet Jesus in his teaching, in his word, 
right? I love the Bible. And that's how we, we encounter Christ. But Jesus forms us, not the Bible. Biblicism is not tenable, in my opinion, of like, what is your faith? My faith is not in the Bible. I love the Bible. That's where, that's one of the ways I encounter the living God, but it's not the only way. The present Christ is my savior, not the English translation of my Bible. Right. And so let's get to the good stuff. Do we read the Bible? Yes. Do we do spiritual disciplines? Yes. Do we confess? Yes. Are we in community? Yes. Communion, baptism, boom, boom. Identification with the body of Christ. Let's do this. Let's serve the world. Let's be the church for the world. But what is the power what is driving this? What is forming us? The person, the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, glorified Jesus, the God who made the reality of the world and the reality of God one thing, the human being who did that, the God human, the God man, right? That is the ground of ethics of formation, not no matter how much I love the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, not a narrative. Narratives are important. They have a place, not a rule. Love the 10 commandments. If everybody, if everyone obeyed the 10 commandments, we'd have great societies and we don't. And that's why our societies suck. So love the rules, love the laws, love the narratives, love the word. They are not the foundation of doing ethics for me. And they weren't for Bonhoeffer either. The present reality of the person of Jesus Christ uh, being instantiated, manifested through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's important. What Jesus accomplished objectively, the Holy Spirit accomplishes subjectively. Hmm. Right? right? That's sanctification. Yeah. So that's the basis of, hey, and how about this? How many Christian ethics has anybody ever read and been like, this is soaked in grace? This is soaked in grace. It doesn't happen that often. Ethicists tend to be judgmental people, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, ethicists tend to be people who like to tell people they're wrong. I'm one of them. We like to do the rule thing. We like to do the, this is justice. I'm going to sign a statement of how bad this is. If our the- mates. I don't know, maybe. If our <laughs> theology is soaked in grace and our Jesus is soaked in grace, why isn't our ethics soaked in grace? One of the things that puts Bonhoeffer's ethics way above everybody else for me, I will die on this hill, is that his presupposition of doing ethics is that we are all already blood-handed sinners who cannot save ourselves, who need the grace of Jesus Christ as the basis for doing the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Which means trying to figure out how to be perfect is off the table. Trying to figure out how to get every single thing right is off the table. We're too finite for that. We, don't, we can't even see. We can't even see how our actions are going to play out through history. Bonhoeffer called that the fog of history. That's why you can't do teleological ethics, because at what point do you stop and adjudicate it? At what point do you stop and go, this was good or this was bad? You can just keep on going down the line of history and say, oh, well, now that's bad. Oh, well, oh, no, now that good thing happened, so it's good now. There's a story at the end of the movie, Charlie Wilson's War, uh, about this, that uh, the character Gust, who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, may he rest in peace. Mm -hmm. He's telling a story about the old man and the horse. Have you heard this story? I've seen the movie, and I loved it, but I haven't seen it in, like, I don't know, since it came out. So maybe it's the final scene. They're celebrating beating the Russians through funding the funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Like they're like super excited. And and Gust is this old hand CIA agent. And he's talking to Tom Hanks' character, Charlie Wilson, the congressman who like helped make it happen. And Charlie's having a drink, celebrating, and Gus is like, I don't know, man. This is this isn't gonna I don't think this is gonna end very well. 
we got to start building roads and schools, man. And Charlie Wilson's like, we got the Russians out. We got the Soviets out. Like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, you ever hear the story of the old man and the horse? And Tom Hanks is his character, you know, Charlie Wilson's like, no, tell me. And he goes, there's a Chinese village. and There's an old sage. Uh, and there's a little boy in that village and he gets a horse. And the village says, well, isn't that great? And the, and the old sage, the old man says, we'll see. And then a couple of years later, the boy falls off the horse and breaks his leg. Horrific. And the villagers say, oh, isn't that so sad? Isn't that so bad? Isn't that terrible? The old man says, we'll see. And then there's a war with a neighboring village and all the, the young men have to go off to war, but not the, not the one that fell off the horse with the broken leg. And the villagers say, oh, isn't that so great that he doesn't have to go off to war? And the old man says, we'll see. And that's the problem with judging your actions in history based upon their results. That's a problem with teleological ethics mm. is we'll see. Hey, it turned out great for now. Or like, how about the day Bonhoeffer got executed? Oh man, you really messed up by opposing the Nazis. You got killed. They won. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, that's the problem with tele teleological ethics. And that's the problem with ethics where you're trying to judge things by like rules and is that there are these there are these nitty gritty problems and all ethics have problems. I'm not pretending that ethics of formation doesn't have its own problems, but if I'm going to ride or die with a system of ethics as a Christian, it's going to be as closely related to the person of Jesus Christ as possible, as closely related to the work of the Holy spirit as possible, as closely related to a one world view in which God is actually in charge and God is actually God, like as close as possible to the grace that I have experienced in my personal relationship with Jesus, that is going to be the basis. If your ethics is graceless, if it doesn't presume sinfulness and grace, like if you're like, well, oh, we all have to be perfect. So we can't, we can't really go to war at all. Cause we're all perfect. What if your whole village is getting slaughtered? You can't pick up, you know, a weapon and defend your wife and kids. Even Gandhi said, if someone came into his house with a gun, he would try to disarm the guy. What's wrong with you? Yeah. When people put principles above people, you're doing it for twisted logical reasons. Cause they have to, cause their system says it not because that makes any sense whatsoever. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ became sin. The least we can do is acknowledge that we're already sinners and fall upon the grace of God and say, I am willing to risk guilt in order to follow Jesus in being responsible in taking up Stelver Traytung. Vicarious responsibility for others. Or Reggie Williams puts it better. It's like this em 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 empathic resistance on the part of the other. Mm -hmm. Let's take responsibility in following Jesus rather than going to our rule sheet and seeing if it makes sense with our, our, our ethical calculus. This is a more human way to do ethics. I guess that's the point of that, right? <laughs> so something I really loved about your book is that it involves a lot of biographical information. I yeah. think that's, that's where, of course where Bonhoeffer sticks out is that he has- I am a sucker for context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I love context. The fact that he writes those things in that context that he's living in is just, is the thing that makes Bonhoeffer so interesting for me and I'm sure for so many others. So I was wondering if you could maybe unpack a little bit about how did these ethics of formation play out practically in his life? Like where do we see that kind of shape his, uh, specifically one of the sections I really love was your section on friendship. Yeah. Anyone's read, I haven't read anyone writing on bond friendship. 
Yeah, so my first chapter that I was able to get published through the friendship of Jens Zimmerman was in a book on Marilyn Robinson and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And my, the chapter that I wrote while I was under um, the direction of Lisa Dayhill, we were able to make it into a, a shorter book chapter um, on this subject. So it was uh, on kind of Bonhoeffer's evolving theology and practice of friendship and like what that looked like in his life and how it changed and his writings. And so Bonhoeffer was a theologian who, and an ethicist and a scholar and a teacher and a pastor who would reflect upon his experience, his lived experience. This is why he's a little bit less ethereal than Bart, right? He's not just saying like, God does all this stuff. And everyone's like, oh, where is he doing it? And he's like, you just got to trust that he's doing it. And it's like, well... Is it happening though? Like for real? And he's like, yeah, it is. And that's what Bonhoeffer's biggest argument with Bart is he, he accused Bart of a positive, positivism, positivism of revelation. Just meaning like, yeah, yeah, revelation, revelation, revelation. It's just like, yeah. It's like, yeah, but we don't actually see this happening. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. It's like, you know, God's revealed that it's happening. You don't have to see it for it to be happening, which there's some truth in, but you can lean so hard that you're just like, where I'm like, Corey, uh, your house is on fire. And you're like, I don't see that my house is on fire. I'm like, just trust me, it's on fire. And you're like, there's literally no evidence that my house is on fire. I'm not going to run out the door screaming with my kids right now. And I'm just like, no, but trust me though. Right? So for Bonhoeffer, things have to actually manifest themselves on planet earth in some way, shape or form, even if it's very partially or at the beginning or in a penultimate way rather than an ultimate way. So, um, I'm really sorry. I forgot the question. No, you're good. I was uh, the practical, the practical ways that it plays out in his life. Yeah. 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 So the, that's what I was trying to kind of say. It has to land somewhere for Bonhoeffer mm -hmm. and he experiences this gracious encounter with Jesus. And then he gets obsessed. Well, he was even before the gracious encounter with Christ, he was obsessed with the idea that there's a community that's the body of Jesus. I mean, that's all over his, his uh, dissertation and then he does it then he builds it yeah. first in berlin as a lecturer and as like teaching these dirty little boys their confirmation like they're like working class like wild and crazy kids you know and he's doing that and he's he's doing some, some preaching and he's doing all the stuff and he's doing some ecumenical peace stuff he's starting to build this community which would be called uh, later be called the bonhoeffer circle Right at while he's lecturing at the University of Berlin after his New York year in the you know the encounter with Jesus, and he's a different guy. He's doing all these things. He's reading the Bible against himself. He's confessing. There's this amazing story where they're in this the high ivory tower, Berlin theology lecture hall, and there's this there's a handful of students and Bonhoeffer's lecturing, and then one of the student notes says, you know I, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the tone is evident where. The student's like, and then Dr. Bonhoeffer did the strangest thing. Remember, they're studying academic theology in the first half of the 20th century in Germany, right? So it's the driest thing you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and then Dr. Bonhoeffer looked up and asked us if we loved Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in that class and being like, oh, yes, theology, yes, this is... Uh, this is how God does, you know, things. And if God exists, who's sure, blah, blah, blah. This is the Bible. We're all scientists here. And then Bonhoeffer looks at him and says, do you love Jesus? Like, imagine that. Yeah. And then he became this amazingly popular lecturer. And people are like, you got to take this guy. He's actually talking about Jesus. That's weird. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Like, he was taking 
academic theology seriously and Jesus Christ seriously. And he took it so seriously, and you see this in discipleship, and you see it way even more in life together, that the primary way that God manifests his will on planet Earth, the primary way that the presence and reality and person of Jesus Christ are manifested on planet Earth is through the body of Jesus Christ. What was true of the earthly body of Jesus of Nazareth, according to scripture, is transferred to his community post-resurrection in the book of Acts. This is initiated in the life of a person by baptism, and it is refreshed by the Eucharist or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper or communion. We are the body of Christ. He takes this very seriously. And that's what Finkenwalde is about. That's what the underground confessing church seminary is about. Taking very seriously that in a real way, not in a perfectly logical way, but in a real way, not in a literal way, but in a very, very close to that way, the presence of Jesus Christ and the formation of Jesus Christ on planet earth is taking place in the body, the community of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what that looks like, you read discipleship and life together. Yeah. I'm not going to defend that. I think he makes a good enough argument in both of those books to be like, although this is totally imperfect, this is true. If you're going to be a Christian, this is what's happening. That doesn't discount God from working in other ways, the Holy Spirit through societies, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. We can talk about that at some other time. But all that saying, Bonhoeffer takes it really seriously that this happens in community. Mm -hmm. But he is into concreteness. And if we in the 21st century know anything, it's that you can throw the word community around without it really meaning anything right? You can ask a hundred different people what community means. They're like, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. So Bonhoeffer gets more and more specific about community looks like this. Brotherhood looks like this. Friendship, Freundschaft. So it's Gemeinschaft, community, Bruderschaft, brotherhood, because he was with brothers, literally. He's not excluding females. There are no females at the Confessing Church Seminary at the time. Mm -hmm. And then Freundschaft, which is friendship. That is the most concrete manifestation of Christian community, of the body of Christ, of the presence of Jesus. You confess to your friend, you encourage your friend, you weep with your friend, you read scripture to your friend, you sing with your friend. Your friend is the most concrete manifestation of community and therefore of the presence of Jesus in your life. Friendship is absolutely critical for Christians who want to follow Jesus. Awesome. Well, I have one last question for you. I ask every, every person who comes on the podcast. It's a little game of Desert Island. Okay. Um, so the idea is you get one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer. It could be a, a theological work. It could be biographical work, anything. Um, what two books are you going with? Okay. So you're on Desert Island, so you want a lot of content. Right. So everybody says Baker's biography. Sure. Because it's good. It's good, and it's long. So. Yeah takes you longer to get through it. You're going to reread it a lot. So I'd say, so that's a book about Bonhoeffer, obviously, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a boring answer, but it's probably the right answer, if there ever was a right answer. <laughs> I've thought about banning it because it's, it's not. Yeah, so let's put, that, let's put that on the shelf, right? Okay. Let's just say, okay, of course, that's the answer. Yeah. You, from now on, just be like, other than. Yeah. <laughs> The thing everyone, this, that, that, that's the, uh, you know, Sunday school answer is like, Jesus. It's yeah, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> Becca. Um, so there's a lot of good ones. Um, 
I think Reggie's book is really good. It is. It's not long. So, you know, you would reread it a lot. Yeah. That's it. Um, it's good, though. You know, it's a really good one. I'll, I'm going to say this because it's like the hipster one. Um, Daring Trusting Spirit. Okay. It's actually about Eberhard Beidke. Hmm. But it interacts a lot with bio. Like, okay, it's like assuming I already have the Beidke biography in my in my suitcase like right. i would that one's just so sweet it's so amazing because baitka gets buried right Bonhoeffer's this towering figure yeah and um and that is um is that degrushi i'm so sorry that i'm forgetting who wrote that but daring trusting spirit by uh you know it's called Bonhoeffer's friend ever heard baitka it's just really good it's just really I'll touching it, but, uh, um yeah degrushi that's really good um that's cheating though, because it's kind of about Baitka. So <laughs> I'll go with Reggie. I'll go with Reggie because right. he's great. And Lisa DeHale should get honorable honorable mention because her book on underside uh, of selfhood is okay. is super dope. And I wouldn't have had I wouldn't have been able to kind of get my methodology kind of dialed in without them. But both those books. But the the Bonhoeffer book I would read. Now, am I alone or am I on a desert island with people? You're alone. Okay. I always say um, my life, li life together, life together. Would, would life but, together make me feel a presence of community or would make me super sad all the time? You can like, just reread the day alone chapter. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. Um, because life together is awesome, but it would make me super sad. I would do ethics both for the content reason. It's a big book. And because his fiction from prison isn't that good. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. And because I love it. And I could dig into it for years and years and years and find new things. And because I have a really good idea of what's in discipleship and life together in my head. Mm -hmm. But yeah, cool. now I'm going to take your question and I'm going to take it one step further. If I could have one audio recording oh. to have with me on this desert on. island, yeah, it would be his lectures that became creation and fall. Oh yeah. Uh, which is volume three. It's tremendous. It's yeah. tremendous. It's tremendous. It's one of the best interpretations of the first few chapters of Genesis. I've, it's, it's the best. So mm -hmm. if I get, if I get to put on some headphones and just listen to that sweet, sweet German, you know, I, uh, I used it quite lecture. a bit for my, for my thesis. Like, man, man, it's good. It, yeah, man, it's good. So yeah, that's my cheating answer. So I'll come down finally on Reggie's, Reggie's book, uh, Bonhoeffer's black Jesus. Um, and ethics because awesome. Reggie's dope and so is ethics. <laughs> That's a great way to conclude. Ryan, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, your book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Ethics of Formation is available on Amazon for anyone who's interested and then uh, find you on, on Twitter. Yeah, easy way to- Yeah, I'm around Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. I'm, I'm always doing something. I've got my own podcast that I do from time to time. Um, <laughs> called the mean it's me and my friend nick but anyway yeah this has been a pleasure thank you for having me on and uh if you ever want to do like a like a like a circle like get a couple of us together and do like a little q a bouncing around i would love to come back because this was a pleasure that'd, that'd be awesome yeah i appreciate it so uh, thanks for taking the time you bet thank you for listening to this episode of the bonhoeffer podcast if you would like to support the podcast please visit patreon.com slash Bonhoeffer pod. We're very close to being able to start our reading group. Um, we need one or two more. So if you are interested in joining a reading group, working through the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works, 
Um, please sign up at patreon.com slash bonhoefferpod. A special thank you to our supporters, Diego Reeve, Soren Jensen, Kevin Dykstra, and Chris Baker. That'll wrap up the show for today. And as always, thanks for listening.